I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Well, hello everyone, and it's a great pleasure to be here with Siri Hustved, who um, is, I have to say, one of my very, I mean, I, I shouldn't really say this out loud, <laughs> but you are one of my very, very favorite novelists oh, that's <laughs> and really writers. Nice. And um, I think one of the reasons for that is that we share a great many interests. We but, do. But also, um, uh, you, uh, you are a novelist of huge intelligence and um, experimental verve, which, which is something um, that's quite rare coming together. <laughs> and um, on top of that, you comment and think about um, the things that, for me in any case, are extremely important. Uh, one of which, of course, is the art world um, and women and the art world, and the other of which is the nature of writing itself. And finally, and I think this is um, one of the most ex extraordinary things about you and indeed about the current intellectual world, um, and that is the way in which our minds work. <laughs> and um, very few people actually think about that in an interdisciplinary fashion, move you know, between or amongst uh, philosophy, the neurosciences, psychiatry, and psychoanalysis. And um, that, that arc of thinking, uh, I don't think anyone else does that who also writes fiction. And um, the kinds of understandings that one garners from not only reading fiction but writing it, I think feed into this mind-body problem yes. um, in, in very interesting ways. So, this is a huge book, <laughs> with know, a great many essays in it, and I recommend, I urge you all to read it. And we won't be able to cover all of it, but we'll, we'll try and look at some of it. And, and Siri and I, in our brief exchange beforehand, um, thought that perhaps we would look most, um, know, with most interest or spend more, most time on the middle section, which is called The Delusions of Certainty, which is almost a book in itself. And um, it's because none of the reviewers really read it. <laughs> so I thought it would be a good thing to advertise it a little bit. Okay. So we're going, to, we're going to engage a little bit with that and, and then you know, open out and also uh, bring you in as we move along. Um, I'm not going to say very much more than this because I know Siri and I know that if I ask one question, that will be it. <laughs> we'll be off. No, no, so, no. So we're going to have a no, dialogue. No, no, no. no, no. I, want, I want to ask the one question. And it's simply, the delusions of certainty are about something which begins with the foundation of the mind-body split. Right. Now, we're women, so we think about bodies because we have to. We have no choice. <laughs> It's something which is there for us, and the more we think about it, the better it is, actually. But um, most of our philosophers have been men. Um, and I don't say this against men, because I love men, and I think their intelligence <laughs> is <are> wonderful. Um, <laughs> and I even miss the man in my life. But, but um, I, you know, when you begin with Descartes, yeah. which, as you do in this essay, you are there in the midst of a very, very uh, rational world. Um, so, what is it that brought you to the mind-body problem? Okay, so the writer. You know, question. it's very, very interesting for uh, this question. I mean, at, early in that essay, I do say that while I was writing it, I would ask, you know, at dinner parties, or I would just say to people, "I'm doing a little informal survey. Just, I have a question for you. What is the mind for you?" And I, I would always say, there's no answer. You know, this is a, a long story. Just tell me. 
That is, of course, a very difficult thing to answer. And then I would say, okay, um, so do you think the mind and the body are the same thing? This also produced some interesting responses. And then I would say, so what about the mind and the brain? Do you think the mind and the brain are identical? What's fascinating is, first of all, that that body, that psych, you know, the psychology-physiology split is something everybody walks around with, I think, in our culture, certainly. Possibly not in other cultures. So what the heck are we talking about? It's such a basic philosophical question. And, you know, when you sit with someone, an intelligent person at a dinner party, and you say things like, well, if you think the mind and the body are two different things, what is the mind made of? And people go, uh, and, and that, for me, is exactly what we're talking about. It's so hard, but it's also so simple. And, and it's extremely difficult to communicate in our culture what, why this is a really huge problem. Now, I return to the mind-body problem because in neuroscience, the longer I worked and the more I knew, the more I realized that the models in neuroscience were essentially Cartesian. So kind of neo-Cartesian, that you had a psychological level and then you had the neurophysiological level. And the scientists would say, not always, but often, we don't know how psychological, subjective reality connects to the neurophysiology. So we say neural co coordinates, neural underpinnings, neural this. They're drawing lines from one level to the other. This to me is a very unsatisfactory way of proceeding. So that threw me back to the 17th century. That is when I discovered Margaret Cavendish, who does not have a, who's an anti-Cartesian. So that was it. It's like a, it's a journey. So that was the intellectual journey. But was there something which set you off before or, or in different ways? I mean, I, I know when we talked once about the shaking woman. Yeah. Um, that was one of the ways that you moved into the psychiatric. No. No. no, it wasn't. No, okay. no. So The Shaking Sick Woman was written after I'd been working for about 10 years at least um, in neuroscience, and I'd been interested in psychiatry since I was a kid. Now, my interest in neurology can probably be traced back to my childhood migraines. So when I was a college student, and I had already experienced these auras, you know, a childhood of auras that were never diagnosed, but then I was diagnosed with migraine. And I started reading about these Christian mystics who had these, you know, transcendent experiences, St. Teresa, St. Catherine. And, um, and I thought, whoa. And then I became interested in epilepsy and uh, migraine as... Uh, as states connected to mystical experience. So, so, so yeah. your interest in how the mind works, which is what you're yes. fascinated yeah. by, is also to do with how the mind sometimes works in different ways and how it doesn't always work in the ways that it's... Yes, or, you know, the perceptual tricks of aura, you know, for any migraineurs out there or uh, people who have... Um, uh, 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 seizures, you can have these very interesting aura states of hallucinations, um, but also euphoria. Very nice. Dostoevsky famously had it, right? But the other thing, late in the Delusions of Certainty, I had this revelation about the placenta that I'm still working on, but the placenta is in there. So I discovered that Western medicine knows almost nothing about the placenta. And when you think about what is it, I mean, it's after birth, right? But it is the 
between organ par excellence. And I started thinking of it metaphorically. It, it's almost as if Martin Buber, you guys, any Martin Buber people out there? Okay, so Buber talks about the between, between I and thou as an ontological reality, right? As something that has its own reality. Now, I don't even know uh, what I think about that, but I think it's a very interesting idea. The placenta is like the pre-Buberian organ. Isn't that amazing? So that that so the placenta is is so great and and we don't and when you go back into embryology, I started looking into 20th century embryological texts, and the thing is hardly mentioned. It's an unstudied, ignored organ. You know, and fascinating. It's, it's fascinating. <laughs> so here is some this rich is what territory. I love about you. you see, you you find these in between things. Yes, that's and right. And you manage to get these links, and it's it's one of the wonderful things about being a novelist is that you move between disciplines, and, right, right. And, and so you can you can actually say, well, here is this very very tight and strict area of neuroscience. Right. But um, oh, I'm a novelist. I can read about that. And then you say, ah, but the placenta. <laughs> yeah, it's like, wh- where did it go? So, okay, so delusions. Let, let's just look yeah. at this delusions of certainty. What are the delusions about? Well, um, I think what I started, you know, what you realize, and this is hardly um, a, a new thought. Um, in fact, it was made famous by Thomas Kuhn. In, um, in his uh, book, what is it, 1963, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, where he talks about what happens, how do scientific paradigms get changed? They get changed when scientists run into a wall, right? Something fails and keeps failing, and then they have to revise the paradigm, what's propping up all the research. And um, so, it seemed to me, after having worked on this material, that there were real problems in a number of uh, the sciences with the paradigms at work. Many of them are being changed, by the way. It's not as if uh, this is a, you know original insight. Um, but I think what's original about the essay is that my approach is not, um, yeah, as you were saying, it is not what everybody says. And, um, and because I have a number of disciplinary lenses uh, that I can uh, use to look at the same problem, uh, I think that's do, very do, useful. Do you, do you want to give us a sense of where you want to go with this? Because it, it's actually, it's very, I, I now realize this is hard to talk about outside a lecture. Because okay. there's so many strands that come into this, right? And, right. Um, I mean, you take up arguments with 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 people like Pinker and um, Stephen Pinker and uh, Dawkins, who are yeah, who is actually was on the radio this morning. I was yeah. just looking at this. What shall we talk about? And there was Dawkins on the radio. <laughs> right. Um, and and what you have, what you, I mean, what you critique within them. Is interesting in itself, but it's also a particular kind of certainty yes. about the uh, where the evolutionary model has taken us. For That's right. So you realize that um, these ideas are, in fact, on, on some level, sold. Right? They're sold to the public, and they're generally sold because they have an intrinsic appeal. So what is it about the selfish gene that made that book so huge? I do not think it is that, you know, Dawkins' neo-Darwinism is, uh, uh, is exactly, you know, wrong. It's that he presented this material in a way with a lot of metaphors that appeal to this, you know, the selfish gene, as I point out, is like a kind of rugged 
individualist, you know, uh, uh, fighting its way into uh, uh, total autonomy. And, you know, genes actually, it, this is a misleading metaphor about the way genetics work. And, um, but it appeals to the culture, and it's sold with a strong personality on top of it. Um, so why do ideas get traction in popular culture? You know, why do they? I think Dawkins is a great example. Steven Pinker, too. He's like a smooth salesman of, of uh, evolutionary psychology, which I think really is among the stupidest uh, 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 positions that can be taken. When you start to look closely at this stuff, it is really, and I'm a great supporter of evolution. I love Darwin, but this, uh, uh, you know, neo-Darwinist evolutionary psychology is just plain dumb. Oh, is it dumb because it reduces everything too much? It reduces everything to, I mean, the, the criticism is so old, but it's, like, it's just so stories. I mean, you have to go back to the savannah, to, uh, to the way we supposedly lived then, and they've invented all these uh, little folk tales about uh, you know, men on the savannah with their spears in the Pleistocene era, uh, a material we don't know about. And then they are linking it to a computational model of the brain with modules you know, the real brain does not seem to have these modules. So if you notice, Pinker seems to be writing about um, how to write a nice prose sentence these days. He seems to have abandoned some of these positions because actually neuroscience has outstripped them. He's also a good writer. so he Yeah, he writes with elegance, and I think he's probably a very charming person. I don't know him, but, um, <laughs> but I, I don't like his, especially his popular work. I think this is not, not a good movement. Okay, one of the sections I found most fascinating, this is personal too because I'm fascinated by this, it, within this essay, is when you start talking about placebos as yeah. one of the ways in which we can investigate the separation between body and mind. Um, so tell us a little about this extraordinary placebo work that's been going on. Actually, or investigate the union of body and mind, right? So placebo, as everybody knows, is the little purple pill that the doctor gives you. And um, they know now that there are placebo effects that can be measured. So you know, physiological effects. If you get the little purple pill, uh, I'll give one example. There are many, but one is that endogenous opioids, right? Those uh, chemicals, opioids that are just there, they're not artificially, you know, taken in, are released in the brain when you get that little purple pill. So how, is the, how, how do we explain this? Right? Is this mind over matter? Is it that the purple pill is you're thinking that you're going to get better, so the thoughts are making the body better? How could that possibly work? Uh, a lot of the science has not asked that question. They just trace the placebo uh, effect. Um, what I think is that there's a, man there's a man named Richard Creighton, who is actually a psychoanalyst and a research scientist, who has a theory, which I think is a good one, which is they know that the more time the doctor spends with you, the higher the placebo effect. Right? So if the doctor just throws the drug at you, you're the effect is not as good as if she sits down and gives, gives you a nice long talk about it. You can even tell a patient that it is a placebo and the effect still works. So what Creighton argues is that this is um, a nervous system response which is connected to memory, to memories of good care. Um, so they're what we might call body memories as opposed to some autobiographical memory that you're bringing up. Now that is, is a good answer in terms of the mind-body problem because you don't have this idea of floating thoughts somehow 
controlling um, a machine-like body uh, below. Yes, and, and I mean, I find placebo fascinating as well because it leads you into that whole controversy about whether psychoanalysis or psychotherapies have any effect. Right. Um, so just Yes, they seem to know now, for example, that treating uh, depression um, with psychotherapy seems to have uh, longer-lasting uh, physiological effects than, say, taking an SSRI, uh, an antidepressant. Uh, so there's quite a bit of empirical evidence now that uh, there really are, you know, changes in the brain uh, that are connected to psychotherapeutic um, uh, effects. Uh, so I think we have to get out of this idea of thinking about uh, that. If we could think about pharmacology in general, right, that there's endogenous pharmacology and there's pharmacology that you can take in pill form or in shots, but that it's all part of chemical changes that can be enacted through either psychotherapy or through drug therapies, that that's a much better way to think about our our human bodies. Of course, no one says this. I do recognize that. But people working on placebo and working on uh, social, you know, the, the effects of social life on human beings, loneliness turns out to be a really bad thing for the body, right? And it's a bad thing for prairie voles, and it's a bad thing for us. Really, prairie voles. Prairie voles. Well. Yes, that. neurogenesis stops. That's probably why, why solitary confinement is one of the most horrifying uh, uh, punishments, and that it should be stopped. It should really be stopped because um, it's uh, um, not what we animals um, are supposed to be living as. Right? It, it stops all kinds of physiological functions. Yeah, um, it is, I didn't right? know they had done vole studies on this. Yeah, there's social vole studies. So, um, just thinking again about borders and placebos yeah. and, and, and uh, placentas, um, there's a very good essay here, which is not part of the delusion of certainty, about transference. And I wonder whether you just want to talk about that space in between. That's right. So I think we can think there, there are people who have written about placebo in connection to transference. So just to say for people who aren't uh, deeply you know, invested in, 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 in um, uh, psychoanalysis or psych psychotherapy, transference is, is referring to the between space between the therapist and the patient and what is happening there. So Freud noticed that his patients uh, seemed to mistake him. You know, the earliest writing about this, Freud says it's kind of a case of mistaken identity. You know, I'm not your mother, father, brother, or some attachment figure. But that transference then is uh, a rich area for change, I mean, wouldn't you? I mean, she. I mean, wouldn't you agree that that's a Absolutely, kind of good yeah. way to yeah. to say it? And then um, things happen there, and the change is wrought in that transference space between the patient and um, the, the analyst or the therapist, I think are akin to these placebo effects. Yes, it's fascinating. Anyhow, it's all in yes. here. <laughs> it's, very hard. It's, very, it's, very, it's very difficult to, to sort of tease out some of the bits because uh, so much is interrelated in what you write about. Um, in the well, traditions of so certainty. there's also, this is, this is a great subject because we hardly have it anymore, false pregnancy. I write about false pregnancy. So when you go into the literature, you realize that um, there are many, many cases in the medical literature. And a, a false pregnancy or a pseudosiasis really involves changes, breast growth, 
uh, uh, hormonal changes in the body, uh, the belly swelling, and even the best one, and I have a lot of, there are a lot of uh, papers that testify to this, a doctor hearing the heartbeat. Now, in the West, this has almost disappeared. But in both India and a number of African countries, the rates are quite high. So why would that be? It probably is because so many pregnancies now are monitored by sonograms. And so when the person who's having the false pregnancy sees that there's no um, fetus, the symptoms usually go away. Um, but in countries where the longing to become pregnant and the social value of being pregnant may be even higher than in, in the West, there's a lot of uh, false pregnancy. So again, this is something that scientists don't like to talk, to, talk about too much, um, except in psychosomatic medicine, because how do you explain that? If you have a divided mo model, this is a very hard business to explain, right? So you have to explain it, I think, through a unified idea that we're body subjects, right? We're not floating minds and uh, machine bodies. I think that's right. I mean, it's very interesting. If you, if you talk to, um, not in, you know, in front of other professionals, but if, if you're in a little group, in a club, say, in a club atmosphere with, with uh, <laughs> neurologists, um, who work in, in, you know, some of the heavier wards and hospitals. Yeah. Um, um, with epileptic patients, say, I mean, as in the old model of, of Charcot, um, the, 19th century, the end of 19th century French doctor, um, they will tell you that a lot of the people who come in with symptoms of epilepsy, not a lot, but a, but a significant proportion, are actually... Hysterical, hysterical patients. Epilepsy. Oh, yeah. No, I've made um, a small living on this. I mean, I go around and talk about it because, no, we're talking about between 10 and 20% of all patients who show up in, in neurology departments around the world are conversion or hysterical patients. So that's a big issue. I think you better say what conversion is. Oh, so conversion disorder is hysteria. So what is hysteria? It is this, that you wake up one morning and you can't move your arm, or you go deaf, or you go blind, or you have seizures, and you go to the neurologist, and the neurologist cannot find a likely explanation, cannot find evidence of a stroke cannot find anything to explain this neurological symptom. And then the detective work starts. So neurologists are tormented by a couple of things. One is that they will misdiagnose someone who really has like motor neuron disease or epilepsy. There are people who clearly have epileptic seizures but do not um, have any evidence of it, for example, on an, F, uh, on an MRI, you know, they do the brain. And sometimes they don't even uh, show up on standard tests, so they have to be very careful. Um, and it's not always obvious. So the idea has always been no organic disease, right? But how can there be no organic disease, as I say to the neurologist? And, and, not, and this is not yeah. a question of faking. It's not faking. And they know now through brain scans that if you tell someone to fake a paralysis, you know, like say, I'm pretending that my, I can't move my arm, and then you do the, a scan of a conversion patient who has a paralyzed, it's often the left arm, uh, they can see the differences in the scans. So that's obviously as evidence that this is not... Um, yeah, so the mind and body are not these Descartesian... They're not these Cartesian separate, things. Separate no. things. No, so that, this is a big thing. And the idea that hysteria went out in the 19th century, totally wrong. Now, why are all of these patients... This is fascinating, right? Why is this not in, in the press? 
Why does no one bother with all these conversion patients that every neurologist is seeing? It's not a fashionable disease. You think it's because it's not fashionable? Why is it, does a disease get fashionable? Even say anorexia. Do you remember 10, 15, 20 years ago? It was the biggest thing. You could hardly open a magazine without reading about eating disorders. They have fallen out. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Out of fashion. Doesn't mean there aren't a lot of people with eating disorders. They're just not hot. Yeah, I think they still are in Britain. Hysteria was very hot in the 19th century. Yes, diagnostic patterns change. <laughs> but diagnostic patterns, but this is really, you know, hysteria was a fashionable disease in the late 19th century. But when you say fashionable, it makes it sound, and, and you talk about this a little bit too, it makes it sound as if, you know, people are just buying it like a new hat. Well, they're reading about it in the way that, I mean, I, I think, yes, diagnostic categories change, but I think that the 19th century understanding of hysteria was superior to, to many contemporary understandings of hysteria. I agree. Yeah. I agree with you on that. So, and, and then, but Charcot made this quite fashionable, and in America, too. Uh, and I, when I say fashionable, I mean a lot of popular attention was paid to it. And now that is no longer true. Um, and what do you think the reason for that is? I think it makes people, uh, I think that there's something discomforting about it because the explanations are in a way insufficient. So science doesn't like to shed light on, on um, what is... Do you think it has anything Unclear. to do with the notion of control? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, that there's that that because this is such a murky disorder, to you know, to push it on the public, unlike certain other things, you know, we've found the whatever, the religious area in the brain or you know, the, the that and it also has to do with journalists, right? What they pick up on. Hysteria is an old-fashioned disease that nobody wants to talk about anymore. Well, it went out of the diagnostic manuals. Yeah, yeah. Got renamed. But conversion, they still, the word hysteria does still appear. Um, let, let, let us, let's move away from this area okay. of mind, brain, and um, medicine. Yeah, yeah. Psychiatric, Go psychological ahead. stuff. Yes. And, and just look yeah. at some of the things that I think people in the room may also be interested in. One of those, of course, is um, where the title of the book takes us, a woman looking at men, looking at women. And, and um, the, the first part of this collection of writings is to do with um, women and art. Yeah. And yeah. Um, one, of the, one of the people that I think is very important to you and, and um, an artist who comes into the blazing world um, have I got the right title? God, I'm going to go. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> the Blazing World is, of course, Louise Bourgeois. Yeah. And can you tell us a little bit about what interests well, you about Well, I her? saw, I was, I reminded you, I think it was 1982, Louise Bourgeois had a big retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art, and I was there. And her work 
completely amazed me. Now, she was already 70 years old by then, and she had been showing in uh, New York, but was really not known um, as an artist. She became famous at 70. And uh, this work, I mean, speaking of mind-body, if you will, uh, her work is always uh, taking on the human body, both uh, male and female. And uh, she was very sophisticated, actually, about psychoanalysis. You know, she said in an interview, they, uh, she was asked, you know, were you ever in psychoanalysis? And she said, oh, no, um, I wasn't in psychoanalysis, but I analyzed myself, which is just as good. She was in psychoanalysis for 36 years, and she stopped when her analyst died. <laughs> but, you know, you don't have to answer those questions if you don't want to, but it's very... so. And she actually thought of becoming an analyst when she was younger, and she's a great writer if you're interested to, to buy her writings. And she was also really angry. She's really pissed off. And I think, you know, in the blazing world, I, I was inspired by that rage. You know, uh, uh, Greek plays and Louise Bourgeois mushed <laughs> together made this kind of beautiful, pure rage. And I quote her in this essay saying that she becomes completely furious and throws things around and roars and screams and, 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 and enjoys it and doesn't feel bad about it until the next day. I, I, I love this idea. And then she doesn't, um, but then something gets her going again and she starts, <laughs> she starts raging again. I think this was quite inspiring. I mean, it's woman. not, yeah, the, the raging woman, but raging for a reason, right? It's not just, um, she's not, I mean, Harriet Burden, for me, this character, the main character of that book, who's then, uh, there are 19 different voices talking about her. There are levels of this. So she has a personal story, but there's also the the contextual and social and societal story, which is she has reasons for rage, just as Louise Bourgeois ignored until she's 70 and she was doing great work when she was, you know, in her th early 30s. Great work. Now very famous. Yeah, the rage is legitimate too. So, you know, there are many levels to that story. And, um, you know, this, again just the mind-body problem. Harriet Burden, I intentionally wanted her to be a huge woman, really tall, taller than I am even, but also really big with enormous breasts. I remember I wanted her to be like a huge body, you know, to be a kind of uh, in-your-face big woman who is also a highly refined intellectual who knows more than anybody else in the book, way more than the editor, you know, so that she was a living example of, you know, a mother. She's a mother. She has children that she loves, but she knows more than anybody else. And that, so she was a kind of uh, slap in the face to the mind-body division just in her very being. And also passionate, emotional, but highly cerebral. I wanted her to defy all that. And she wouldn't be the woman who'd be naked in the Met. <laughs> she would not be the woman who would be naked in the Met, no. Uh, as the Gorilla Girls um, poster has it. Right. Um, so, I mean, do you think the art world has changed in the years since we've women have been actually talking about ways in which women do not get into that unless they're undressed. Listen, that's right. I think the moment we will know everything has changed is when the prices for male and female artists are the same. That is not anywhere close. We will know in the general world of the arts 
when people stop coming up to me and saying, I don't, this is not fiction, but I don't read fiction, but my wife does, would you sign the book to her? <laughs> then we the will have known that we have come <laughs> somewhere else. Uh, we will know when, uh, you know, <laughs> I've been thinking, so what is this? Because, you know, a book doesn't have a body. You know, there are no breasts on this book. It is text. So what is it that's going on? Um, what is this about? I think that, you know, I know and you know and probably everyone in this room knows and people in this room know that this is not a universal prejudice, right? I mean, lots of men read books written by women and lots of women read books written by men, obviously. But the prejudice is deep and complex. And there is an essay on Knosko in there where I talk about this, that the you know, reading is an intimate thing, right? And you have to have, the voice has to take over your brain in order to read. You can't have two voices going at once, just one. And that is an act of submission. All of us read in an act of openness and submission, or you can't read the book. So I think this prejudice is profound, and it has to do with not giving yourself up to the authority of a woman. You know, if you're nervous, and a man. If you're not nervous, it's fine, because you've read so many books, and it's just part of your reading habit. But that's a deep thing. Well, we're all happy to submit to you, Siri. <laughs> um, so time for yeah. some questions. Okay. <laughs> Uh, there'll be a mic coming around with Claire. So if you have anything, I'm sorry, let me just list I babbled the on many, here. Okay. many subjects that are in here that we haven't covered. Yeah, well, that's okay. I mean, it's writing, uh, yeah. fiction, yes. art. Writing is therapy, right? Therapy, the mind, the body. What else? Come on, help me. I need my glasses. A, I mean, if it, for, I, sometimes there are people doing, um, there is a, I, were, I was a volunteer writing teacher for psychiatric patients for four years, and there's a, an essay in there called The Writing Self and the Psychiatric Patient, which, um, you know, I did realize at some point that writing was actually really good for psychiatric patients. It had a therapeutic value. Mm. So that's something interesting. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, we just... There's a question? Sorry. Yeah, there is. Sorry. Okay. Okay. <laughs> We can't see you, or at least I can't. Siri, I can, I can. Yes. Hey. Um, I was just wondering, I thought what you were talking about with hysteria before was really interesting, um, and how it differs from the kind of 19th century conception of hysteria. Um, and I was just wondering whether you think it's still codified as kind of a female um, illness, yeah. as, as kind of like a womanly thing, because obviously it had that kind of stigma that it was definitely something to do with kind of like wombs and women, um, in the 19th century, and I'm wondering if, like, um, when you were talking about the illness that still presents today, whether that's still linked in some way. Right. So most of Charcot's patients were women, but he insisted very strongly that it was not limited to women. And if you look at the writing and actually look at some of the drawings that they were doing at the Salpetriere, there were definitely male hysterics as well. Um, now, uh, the numbers, they often will say that there are as many as 10, 10 times as many women. This is a commonly quoted statistic. Um, my reading of that um, is that in combat populations, which have traditionally been men, you see the highest number of hysterical conversions, right? So the First World War had one... Uh, patient after another who went blind, deaf, had seizures. And there's a, a, a brilliant chapter in a book by a neurologist named Edwin Weinstein, who uh, is now dead. But he has a whole chapter on conversion disorder and the military in the United States, beginning with the Civil War. It's just very uh, smart, interesting chapter. But what would it be, what would the similarity be between 
female patients and soldiers. There's um, another guy, Myers. He's the guy who, who coined the term shell shock. He talks about the fact that soldiers in the trenches during the First World War had much higher incidence of hysterical conversion than officers. People who feel helpless and oppressed and are following orders rather than giving them are more likely to have conversion re reactions than people who feel in control. It seems to be a disorder of agency. And there's quite a bit of work on that now in contemporary neuroscience and neurology. You know, how do we think about what's happening? I think the question of agency is, is a very good one. So, you know, th this is a, obviously a, th a theoretical notion, but they have isolated certain areas that seem to be affected in, in the brain, you know, in the scans that are connected to problems of, um, I mean, to questions of agency and ownership, et cetera. That's very interesting. Isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, Freud's first work on, on war neuroses was about this. Absolutely. There's some. Um, sorry, I, I don't know how well I'm going to articulate this question, but um, from the placenta to the idea of the placebo pill being articulated best by the doctor, even to Harriet's body, these yeah. all seem like metaphors for large containers whereby things can bounce against them and always be absorbed. And I just wondered, obviously, all your thought is percolated through a mind that can keep on reorientating itself. Have you ever felt your own boundaries becoming blurred? Do you feel that sense of like a man confronting a book that you might not understand? Is there ever paralleled in your own experience? Well, you know, this question of boundaries is, of course, you're absolutely right. So how do we, you know, so it's, it's philosophical, it's uh, uh, psychological, if you will, uh, it's embodied. It's, it's all of these areas are affected by the question of, of, of boundaries. You know, where does, um, where do we begin and where do we end? The placenta is a great image of that because without the placenta, the fetus, and actually the mother's health is also um, uh, seriously endangered if something goes wrong with the placenta. So it's an interesting between organ. And then there are all, I mean, one of the essays in there, I talk about my own mirror touch synesthesia. You know what this is? Only named in 2005. But synesthesia is often, you know, you know people see letters in colors, you know, or they, um, they listen to music and see colors depending on what's happening. So mine is a little more banal, but it's, if I see someone touched right there, I have a little shadow sensation in my own body. So this, you know, this is clearly something where you're feeling, you know, with in some way, with another. I mean, I know it's not me. You know, I, I'm quite clear about that. But, uh, but this has been, I believe, because of West, the Western story and philosophy, unexplored territory, right? Certain philosophers have done it. You know, ideas of mirroring, D.W. Winnicott, I mean, Freud and the transference and countertransference. Uh, the beautiful work of uh, Bakhtin, the great Russian theorist. You know, this is all between dialogical stuff. Um, do I feel uh, that my boundaries are loosening? I think, in a way, the act of making art is often this, right? So. What's the difference, I asked myself after writing The Blazing World, between multiple personality disorder and being a novelist? I think there is a difference there. That's one of the areas that I don't agree <laughs> There is. No, I agree. There is a difference. And I say what the difference is. The difference is that, you know, it's Ernst Chris answers that question, I think, very beautifully by saying that 
artists don't have ego disintegration in the way that people who have those disorders. But that doesn't mean you don't have an experience of plurality. It's just that you don't, you don't go to pieces. You don't fragment in the way that people who are really suffering from these d disorders do. It's a kind of play and pleasure in ways that, you know, dissociated people, dissociated identity people don't have. Fun. See, there's also something called <laughs> the real. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, and, of course. Uh, the measure of it. Um, I hope this isn't something that you get asked all the time. In your no, it's okay. Answering. Go ahead. Um, but when you were talking about um, why conversion disorders don't get column inches, um, the word that came to mind was um, perfectibility, this idea that maybe it flies in the face of the idea that we're sort of, you know, that we could achieve perfection um, <laughs> as people. And I was wondering what you think about the wellness industry, like the current trend we have, because that's something that gets... A lot yes. of column inches, right? This idea that we can improve right. ourselves. So, you know, Americans might be even worse than anybody else in the world about this, right? I mean, I've long thought that Americans don't actually believe in death. You know, that Americans have a big problem with that pretty big thing that happens to all of us and that the wellness industry as wow. you say is actually part of that you know if you eat broccoli and you do all the right things you might not die but also you can turn your body into this object uh, you know so the body is not the thing we're just you know feeling as I say most of the time I don't even think about you know, myself as this object from the outside, right? Mostly I'm just here. My, you know, I get little prickles or things are happening. I'm having sensations. But I'm not thinking about myself from the outside. And I think the wellness industry is very much like that, right? The body is turned into this object to be perfected, you know, with certain kinds of arms and, you know, Abs. That was the you know beginning of this thing. I remember having <laughs> the right abs, <laughs> you know, and that so so that the mirror image becomes the body, and that actually isn't how we live in our you know, as bodies, right? We live as bodies without seeing ourselves. Um, so I think there's a lot of uh, unwellness connected to the wellness. Yeah. Another question? Uh, hello. Uh, Hi. Sorry. Hey. Well, I have a question about death, so apologies. About? <laughs> Dying. Dying. Okay, good. Let's <laughs> just go there. <laughs> um, and this is partly because of, uh, you mentioned the space between, you, you know, you and I. Yeah. And the space and sort of the connection between mind and body. Um, and having recently been with someone who died, um, there's a lot of talk about how, you know, families keep this you know, 24-7 vigil with the dying person on the yeah. hospice ward or wherever. And then it's the moment you go out to the toilet or, like, go get a sandwich, that's when they, you know, pop the their The person cocks. does, yeah. And it's like, I guess I don't have a fully formulated question about it, but it's just interesting, like, what is that space between people when you're completely doolally or unconscious and how are you sensing that and how do you decide when to go? What's that connection between... The mind and the body. It's, it's, you know, there actually are now epidemiological studies about people dying in, I mean, that one spouse dies, you know, we all have these anecdotal stories, one spouse dies and then the other dies very quickly after. I think we all know these, these stories and they've actually done uh, studies where this is in fact true. I mean, that those chances. And I don't think there's any question that we don't understand, say, what the family drama is about dying. That it's possible that a person, um, that there is some will, right, involved in dying. My mother is 94 years old and she lives in a place, assisted living place with old people. And of course they die, so the people change. There was 
a 102-year-old man. He was perfectly clear, nice guy, needed some help, you know, at nighttime. The day after our very sad election, this man came into the room and said, this is not, he, he was a soldier in the Second World War, an American soldier. He said, I, this is not what I fought for. I don't want to live in a world where Donald Trump is president. He went back into his room and he died that afternoon. Well, since you've raised that name, <laughs> <laughs> can we have the Siri Hustved version? Yeah, well, Donald I, Trump and the mind-body problem. Yeah, so <laughs> it's right. It's everywhere. I think it's the politics of shame. People don't like to use that because people say anger. Yep, there's anger. But what is the root? The, what is the fastest root out of shame is anger. So I think this really is a story of angry white men and the women who identify with them. Um, black people did not vote for Donald Trump. Uh, Asian people did not vote for Donald Trump. Urban people did not vote for Donald Trump. Uh, and what we have, I think, is a changing America, changing demographics, and feeling humiliated by those fancy schmancy people over there in New York or California. Or London. Or London. <laughs> who think that they're better, right? So that's now uh, understood as, an, as the elites. But I think it's not about money, it's about that. And, and, and it's horrible uh, uh, because we have to press it. There's a guy who writes about right-wing populism in Europe, and after the Trump election, he had a little piece in The Guardian and he said, after the right wing wins a big victory anywhere, whether it's you know uh, in Europe or in the, or now in the United States, everyone goes out and talks to the people. And who are the people then in the minds of of the journalism? They're those white guys. They're the white you know blue collar white guys out there in the hinterlands. And as he said, it's really important to understand that angry white men are not the people. You know, I was in the March on Washington the day after the inauguration. No one called us the people. No one called 800,000 women and, and quite a few men the people. We have to stop that idea that it's white working class men who are the people. Same thing happened here with Brexit. Yes, yeah, so then the everyone people. goes out. And, and why is that? As he said, the, the journalists writing about this stuff are generally uh, uh, white guys. Should we have one more last question? <laughs> Final question. Hi there. Hi. Um, I, I had a more sort of a general question about your, your writing. I mean, it's, it's obvious from lots of your novels that your fiction is um, sort of informed by lots of different kind of intellectual kind of disciplines and wide right. reading and I, I suppose my question was sort of do you feel because there are not many writers who write like that I think for example Margaret Atwood I think has uh, sort of quite well documented interest in, sure. in neuroscience things like that but yeah. it doesn't necessarily appear in her fiction in terms of the way she constructs right. stories and characters and I suppose I, I suppose what I want to ask is is, is that something you uh, is that something that comes naturally out of your reading is it something that it, it's very hard to merge create stories out of kind of uh, intellectual disciplines and do you sort of feel like you're operating out there on your own a little bit in terms of the way that you write or perhaps there are other writers who do that that I'm not aware of but uh, I suppose it's just the how how you, you merge yeah, the, no, the I, worlds I, of fiction and, yeah. and, and sort of right, I suppose so, academia and things like that. So there's drift right so if you're really obsessed with uh, certain thoughts or ideas they do migrate into your fiction quite naturally. But, you know, making a story or these characters, I have to say, um, it's a pretty unconscious process. You know, it has to feel necessary and insistent. And I don't know what they're going to do, you know. But even writing essays, I don't always know what's 
going to happen. You know that an idea appears. I've al always thought that we ha we divide the world. You know that if you look at stories about physicists, for example, you will see that their ideas can come in dreams. You know, or they have suddenly very intuitive uh, insights. I, novelists and poets work in very similar ways. I think creativity is across the board. Uh, and uh, I was quite conscious of certain aspects, for example, of the blazing world of, uh, you know, I mean, it has a lot of footnotes. Uh, and some of them are, are made up. Uh, and some of the most of them aren't, but that that I was playing with that apparatus, and at the same time, exactly what was going to happen, or listening to those different characters' voices, I have no idea where they came from. So I think it's a combination of uh, playing with ideas, but finally being led by these very gut. Uh, feeling so yeah oh it has to go there why I have no idea right yeah. well Siri thank you so thank much you. for that thank you all come <laughs> and, and uh, have a look at these wonderful books here and thank you thank, thank you, you very thanks much. for having me thanks for listening to find out more about London Review Bookshop events visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events <laughs>